0: Listening to Rattle and Pedal, Diversion Thoughts on Marketing and Growing Professional Services Firms. Your hosts are Jason Malicki and Jeff McKay. All right, so Jeff, you, you managed
1: to bring us another wonderful guest. I'm so appreciative of it. And he needs no introduction, but I'm going to give him an introduction anyway. So, Fred Reichelt is the founder of the Bain Loyalty Practice. He is the creator of the Net Promoter System, the author of numerous best selling business books, including The Loyalty Effect, The Hidden Force Behind Growth, Profits, and Lasting Value. His work on loyalty has been widely covered in the Wall Street Journal, the New York Times, Financial Times, Fortune, Business Week, and The Economist, and Prudent Pedal. The author of numerous HB articles, Fred's most recent book, Winning on Purpose, lays on an approach to take loyalty to the next level. Fred, welcome to the Rattle and Pedal podcast. Is there anything I missed in that that you said, Jason, why didn't you tell your audience this? What did I miss?
2: Well, I got three lovely grandchildren and uh, hopefully more coming, but
1: that's all. And four kids, right?
2: Yeah, four children, right.
1: Yeah, I have four children. One, as well. one
2: before the other. It's very good.
1: <laughs> <laughs> All right, so let's start at the beginning. What does it mean to win on purpose?
2: You know, the, the play on words there is that it turns out there's only one way to win sustainably, and that is to love customers. The book Winning on Purpose makes the economic case, the, the evidence behind that, that assertion. And it's pretty shocking. Industry after industry, we find the only guys that are delivering shareholder value, real shareholder value. Yeah are those who have done a great job of earning high net promoter scores from their customers versus the competition. Maybe there is a monopoly out there or somebody who's found a way to cheat the system, but the way the system works is, you know, the companies that love customers best end up with the happiest shareholders and employees.
1: When you think about the the notion of purpose, there's so many companies that are just tossing around big lofty purposes that are super far from that. Did you find in your work that the the companies that are you know achieving the highest net promoter scores and having the most success there, that their stated purpose is more crisp and clear and, and customer focused? Is that what you found in the research?
2: Yeah, for the most part, the companies who put customers first recognize that they indeed put customers first. They don't yeah. just say it. They they have a lot of policies and procedures, and they organize around it. You know, Costco is an example I use in the book that they make it very clear. They ask the CEO who, which stakeholder comes first. They say members. There's you know, ask ask Bain and Company which stakeholder. Obviously, you have to treat everyone up to golden rule standards. Don't be a parasite in any relationship. But the reason you exist as a company at least the great companies is to solve customer problems to make their lives better. So you know I just did a LinkedIn blog on the Bain professional conduct code, which most you know most professional service for any of the you roll your eyes every time you get that email that you got to go through it again and take the test and I roll my eyes too and yet I reread. it's perfect. It says the primary stakeholder for Bain is our clients. The reason we're there is to make them succeed, help them succeed. And all other stakeholders come afterwards. And there's an idea there that you can't serve those other stakeholders well until you first have made customers' lives better. This is one of the things
3: that jumped out at me in listening to several of your other interviews. I mean, that's so counter to what everybody is pitching now right? Everything is stakeholder, 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 right? Appease all of these constituencies.
2: Yeah, uh, you do. You can't screw up any set of relationships, but that's not a purpose. Those are a set of constraints. The Uh the purpose for a great organization is to make customers' lives better. I do think there's a lot of fuzzy thing going on in the business world today. The old-fashioned notion of capitalism was... Shareholders come first. The maximized shareholder value is our primary duty. That's just not an opinion. That's actually written into the regulations and the documents that you have to sign as a board member of a public company. Capitalism, I think, has gotten a little off-center. Not completely, because as you read Winning on Purpose, you see that by putting customers first, that's the only way to make your long-term investors succeed. But it's wrong that I think great companies do not put investors first. They see that they have to create value for investors or they won't exist that's not a purpose that's a constraint loving customers is what energizes good employees it's what drives innovation it it holds you accountable to make sure you're solving their problems and making them prosper and that dedication to service to others is meaningful It, it creates energy and inspiration in your workforce and it's a good reason for a company to exist not a selfish reason
1: you know Fred I'm super curious you know when I was in business school 20 years ago maximize shareholder value was well anybody talked about and when you were in business school was that the conversation as well has has the conversation shifted and do you think today the conversation is about customer love I don't sure first, first that's what you kind of want, you want it to be what's what's your sense on that I'm just curious
2: no when I was in business school maximize shareholder value was an unquestioned doctrine there have been a lot of screw-ups in the fifties, sixties, where giant corporations were coming up with all sorts of reasons to hide behind a mediocre performance for investors. And, and investors started rising and, and had a way to to hold people accountable. I think there was a finance professor, Michael Jensen, who came up with this notion of agency theory. And you had, long story short, investor supreme. And Milton Friedman was one of the people regularly quoted... Uh-huh. It's wrong. It's a completely flawed model. And it's helped a lot of people get rich. It's helped a lot of businesses actually get a little bit more accountable. At least they're accountable to somebody as opposed to executives being accountable to themselves and making up any balanced stakeholder argument that serves their purpose. You know, a good story I like to repeat is told by Scott Cook, the founder of Intuit a software company that has TurboTax, QuickBooks and so forth. And he says, Fred, a man with one watch knows what time it is. A man with two watches is never quite sure. And a man with a f- an arm full of watches is spending most of his time figuring out which watch makes him look best. And, <laughs> as, <laughs> and that's where we are with stakeholder capitalism, with all these different watches, none of which is reliable or audit worthy, but it's just a set of opinions and estimates of you know, useful dimensions. And it. it turns accountability into chaos.
1: I love that so much I can't even begin to, to begin to begin to do it justice. What a great story. All right. So while we're on this thread, I'm just curious. So so why did you start to study loyalty in the first place? Like what took you to that moment? You're coming into this world where like everyone's talking about shareholder value and you're like, no, I'm going to go study loyalty. Like how did that happen?
2: No, I was a shareholder value guy. I care yeah. about economics and finance and accounting and all that stuff. I just happen and Bain & Company of all the consulting firms in the world is as focused on financial results, real results for clients as as any I've seen. But with that philosophy, I saw companies that were sort of breaking the rules that I understood that I learned in business school, and they were just growing faster and making more money than they should have given their strategic position. A classic would be Enterprise Rent-A-Car, who was in a low-growth commodity industry, car rentals. I mean, everybody is renting the same Chevys and Kias and, you know, you name the brand low profit margin, huge players like Hertz and Avis, EuroCar, and and somehow Enterprise came in as a tiny little family leasing business in St. Louis, Missouri, and grew to become the largest car rental company on earth. And that's sort of an economic miracle that breaks all of those rules I learned in business school. And as I started piecing these together, I saw a common theme across all of them, whether they were little companies in the credit card business or Enterprise rent a Car or Costco, Little entrepreneurs, Bain & Company is a great example. Why should Bain exist? There were McKinsey and BCG were huge and successful. How did we get to be where we are today? And it, the common denominator was these companies were earning the loyalty of their customers and employees, and that was creating an enormous economic advantage that was invisible to traditional accountants. There is a flywheel at the center of economic prosperity that people just didn't get. And Andy Taylor, the, the guy that built enterprise into the great car rental business it is, he, he told me years ago, he says, Fred, there's only one way to build a great business with a sustainable economic ad- advantage. You treat your customers so they come back for more and bring their friends. And, and it sounds like a throwaway line until you recognize we don't measure that in business. I could ask the accountants or the auditors at any of a thousand public companies tell me precisely. What percentage of revenue is coming and growth is coming from repeat customer and their referrals? And I don't think one company on earth could tell you that number. So while common sense tells you that's right, it's obvious, you know, cash flow comes from customer wallets, customers coming back for more and referring their friends, that's the miracle flywheel. We don't measure it. We don't understand it. And therefore, much of what companies do is inimical to that flywheel working well.
3: So you've done some work on that front. You've created a new metric. Tell us about
2: that metric that closes that gap. Well, a, a, a couple of metrics at least. I started with retention rates. I just wanted Money? to look at what percentage of customers came back each year. Not revenue-weighted or anything, just yeah. simply how many, how many weren't coming there's, back. That, that created a lot of insights, Pract- believe mm-hmm. it or not. That simple idea created... You know 10 or 20 years of great consulting opportunities and private equity opportunities then you think well it's not just whether the customer comes back it's were they big customers and and it moves to to a metric net revenue retention rates you know how much of your uh, revenue last year how much come back (laughs) of those customers how much of your your current year is repeat and i found that those were useful but they weren't real time and so i came up with a survey technique called net promoter score, where you just ask one question. And I hate surveys. And so if I had to have a survey, it was going to be a short one. And and so we looked for the one question that really got to the heart of the matter. And the right question is how likely is you would recommend this to a friend or in a business setting, maybe friend or colleague. That is the essential question because you don't recommend a company or a brand just because it's good economics or quality, it has to have all those things Or just because you trust it, you don't recommend a company that abuses its employees. You don't recommend a company that cheats on its taxes. Recommend means you're co-branding your personal reputation with that entity. It's a big threshold, high threshold, and it's emotional. Which I think most people make decisions emotionally, not economic. You know, the economic rational side explain your decisions, but it's emotions at the core of human behavior. And it would recommendation gets there. So how likely to recommend to a friend zero through ten. Nines and tens, you know, those are the people that feel like their life has been enriched. They they're going to come back for more and bring their friends. Passives the sevens and eights, not really assets. They're not liabilities. Now the the, the liabilities are the detractors zero through six. They didn't get what they paid for. They would recommend against you. They they really hurt your future. And I, I just encourage companies to measure that carefully and to act on it. If you diminish someone's life and they tell you they're a detractor, reach out, close the loop, learn, fix. Same thing on the promoter side. When when you do enrich a life, make sure that you celebrate it and understand what the company's doing and do more of it. So it just it gave a real practical, real time focus to the true, you know, the real North Star of success, enriching customers lives. Now, many companies have adopted that. I think actually most probably around the world, but they misapply it because they forget the philosophy. Uh-huh. They think, Oh, the goal is to get a 10 for my customer. No, treat customers so they come back for more and bring their friends. This net promoter process just shines a light on this heretofore black box process and lets you understand better and learn faster. But the companies, you know, in their, and counting mindsets say, oh, I net promoter score. I'm going to look at the frontline bonuses. And so you get car dealers and people at dental offices all begging for tens, even though they did a crappy job. Then, you know, what good does that do? It, so Winning on Purpose was written. To get this back on track,
1: I'm curious. You know, as I listen to you talk about it, I get the sense that there's probably some frustration with where it went. Right? Like, like that, that there are companies that are just misapplying it so egregiously that it's like, well, you completely misunderstand what I was trying to get you to uh, to learn in the first place.
2: Oh, the and vast majority, purpose, of, the vast majority right. of companies are screwing it up royally. They just don't understand the power of this flywheel at both generating economic prosperity and Creating an inspiring purpose for the employees, so they, you know, they do a real half-assed job of putting it in place. They surveys, you know, surveys are tricky. Who you ask, when you ask, how you ask, samples, you know, biases. It this is a science, and they just they self-administer surveys, and then when they look good, they report them to the public and beat their chest on how great they are. It's just it's silly. At Bain, it took us. God, it took four or five years to get a net promoter feedback process in a professional services setting that really made sense. And we made all the classic errors, you know, good intentions. But if if you're at the center, if, if you're the managing partner and you say, oh, I want to have, I like this net promoter thing. I want to have a way to control all of my offices around the world, all my practices. So I have a sort of a gauge of who's doing a good job in building the brand. If you introduce net promoter that way to serve the center as a control device you're basically going to destroy it because you're going to get car dealer behavior out there in the in the field you'll get partners who they only send the surveys to their friends at the client they don't send it at all (laughs) they they ignore it you know and if your frontline partner team doesn't really feel like this is a useful tool to help them do a better job they're not going to waste their time on it so at bain it's designed to be helpful to the frontline account team those are the line partner the account relationship manager is the one that decides when a survey gets set the timing of responding to it which we have enterprise clients sometimes you send a survey request to 50 or 100 people in that client you can't just do that willy-nilly people are busy so you got to be very careful about setting expectations and how this is going to lead to a follow-up account review where both Bain team and the client teams sit together and talk about what they learned from this feedback and what makes sense as the the, the next step. So, you know, we pulled it out of partner bonuses. You, you're not even allowed to talk about NPS survey results at partner review time. It's just off the table, good or bad. It's not part of the review process for evaluation. It is a 100% a way to get better feedback from your clients about how you can improve
0: listening to rattle and pedal divergent thoughts on growing your professional services firm your hosts are jason malicki principal of rattleback the marketing agency for professional services firms and jeff mckay former cmo and founder of strategy consultancy prudent pedal if you find this podcast helpful please help us by telling a friend and rating us on itunes thank you now back to jason and jeff
1: So is there a time of year when you do it, or how how do you determine the right time to to serve a client in in a professional services firm? Like you just said, where the the delivery is complex, there's tens of people, twenties of people, hundreds of people serving the account, and there's more people on the client side. How did you unpack that for Bain? How did you say, well, what's the right time to do this and the wrong time to do it? Well, it's
2: it's different for every business, every industry. So I would tend to sit down with my clients and explain what I'm trying to accomplish. And and get their input on a best process. Does it need to be anonymous to coax out the truth or not? I'd rather not have it anonymous because it lets you do closed loop yeah. follow up. But in some cases, like junior clients had really hard time giving candid feedback. We found to Bain teams because they figured, oh, these you know the Bain guys are all connected to the senior executives. If I say something negative, I'm going to be thought of as a, uh, a Debbie Downer. So that the only way to coax out the truth was to give people who were giving feedback the ability to make it anonymous. And then that makes it anonymous across the entire group of employees like that person. So they're not sort of inadvertently, yeah. <laughs> thing you know, they're, I'm the one person in the 40 who was anonymous.
1: So they know who they are. <laughs> and
2: those are subtle. And there are dozens of choices that need to be made intelligently. But you know, is it worth all the effort? Well, do you believe Fred's idea that the flywheel of the only way you build a brand sustainably is to treat customers so they repeat, you know, they buy more from you and, and and refer you? Well, I think most people agree with that. And so it's designing a process to get feedback and the timing, you know, it depends if there's a transactional kind of feedback that's appropriate, you know, that's a more frequent, appropriately a more frequent process for relationship gauges. I've seen that work. Quarterly, more often it's, you know, once or twice a year, but it, more than anything, it needs to be integrated into the standard account planning and account strategy process so that it comes you know, a few weeks in advance of that. So you're basing this on uh, feedback from clients and what they think about the value you're creating and, and the, the state of the relationship.
1: They're using it as a tool to inform the conversation about what yeah, comes back. Yeah, not
2: to gauge whether you're doing a yes. good job or not you know if you're going a good job you, you give referrals and they buy more stuff or even if they don't buy you know it's just not appropriate we don't need you now there's still referrals you know they are saying boy for the right job at the right time these guys are the best in the world
3: so fred i work with a lot of different professional services firms and my sense is the majority if not all of them think of themselves as incredibly client centric and great at client delivery. It kind of reminds me of Lake Wobegon children. You know, they're all above average, but they're not. What firms really do this exceptionally well in the professional services space or the B2B space more generally? And what are they doing differently in that
2: space to really realize the potential of a system like this? I'll be honest, the only professional service firm I know in depth is Bain. And Bain is quite good at it. The, the evidence isn't because we've got a system, you know, a net promoter feedback system that's so special. I think it's quite good, but it's still a work in progress. I, I know it's true because when you ask Bain employees, what's the primary purpose of our organization? The vast majority will say our client success, that there's no confusion about. Our job is to grow revenues or our job is to have some, make our partners rich or have the best economics in the business. When you ask a typical company, what's the primary purpose of your organization? 90% will say something other than customer or client. They'll say uh, it's you know balanced stakeholder or more likely it's maximize shareholder value or make it a great place to work. It, it's a lot of things, but it's not focused on customer. So I think More than anything, just honestly figure out what percentage of your team, not just partners, everybody understands in a cultural sense that the primary purpose, you know, we exist as a firm is to make our clients succeed. And then the next test is, do you have a way of measuring client success that's reliable and your client agrees with? (laughs) Most companies fail there. So I think just getting the basics in place will help professional service firms learn how good they really are. The last chapter of Winning on Purpose is called Be Humble. It's an important idea because I agree with you, most people do think they're better than they are in terms of doing great things for their clients. And this measurement process and feedback process can be, usually, is very humbling, but you gotta have it. And you can't ask your clients every week, how am I doing, how am I doing? But you can ask your teams every week, how they feel about the progress they're making toward uh, making customers happy or or help their client succeed. So we do weekly huddles at Bain. short, but it doesn't talk about how we're going to sell more revenues next week. It talks about how are we doing living up to our uh, ambitions with our client and helping them succeed. And those discussions are what drive priorities and behaviors in in the day-to-day and week-to-week timeframe. My
3: sense in listening to you talk Fred is for you NPS it's not just a system it's just not a philosophy for business but it's just a way of being as a human being and you use the word love your customers a lot talk a little bit about NPS and customer service as a
2: way of being more generally yeah NPS I almost didn't call it that. I almost called it net lives enriched because in a sense, you know, every time you touch a life, you, you either enrich it or you diminish it. And that's sort of your balance sheet through a life of uh, whether you made the world a better place. And so I called it net promoter score because it seemed a little more businessy and the notion business people would react to promoters or assets, detractors or liabilities. But it's the same thing. And, and in healthcare, I'm finding more organizations like net lives enriched as the name of this of this process mm-hmm. but yeah is it's much more than a business philosophy it it is a way of approaching any kind of relationship your own human purpose but the cool thing is that in business when you measure the financial outcomes and look at the true economics it's just so clearly the winning approach that every one of these companies who's delivering great results over a decade are loving customers. They are not just saying it, they act in ways. You know, they they their enterprise does not screw their customers with um, nickel and dime, you know, they don't mark up refilling gas tanks 500% on the gas. They don't say, oh, your spouse is driving, that's another 50 bucks. They just don't do that stuff. And on and on, You, you find Vanguard is one of these companies that's grown to an unbelievable scale. By loving, you know, they, they act in their customers' best interest. And, and so many people in financial services, oh, that's impractical. And you go, really? Then, then why are these guys crushing you? <laughs> and, and all, you know, and on and on. It seems like it's a charitable notion. No, these guys are business people. They know that you have to have employees who are well compensated to attract talent. But man, once you get that flywheel spinning of customers coming back from where and bringing their friends, it's hard to screw up, and even at scale, Apple, who who embraces this philosophy and acts in customers' best interests. Look how it's just astonishing how large they've been able to become and and stay by having this net promoter idea at their core. We exist to make customers' lives better.
1: So I'm uh, curious, I, I love the idea of, I think you said net lives enriched, is that what you called it? Yep. When you look back on the journey, I mean, I I think it's arguably you created one of the most influential management thinking concepts in the last 30 years. When you look back on the journey, what would you have done differently?
2: I would have found a way to get more personal income out of uh, that invention.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Hey, wait a minute.
2: What would I have changed? I guess I would have foreseen how hard it is and how entrenched this notion is of uh, we exist to, I mean, you could say you're customer focused, but if- All of your accountability tools are based on financials, short-term financials, and all of your bonuses and your budgeting process and what you report publicly, your sense of pride is all based on being great at, at financials. It's going to be harder to shift to what True North is than I was aware, and I probably should have understood that earlier on and had more practical steps of doing it right. But I think at this point, the connection to financials has to be even stronger, and and that's why I've introduced earned growth as the metric yeah. that, along with net promoter, net promoter is survey based. Surveys serve a role, but they certainly are not a hard financial metric. Earned growth is simply taking what Andy Taylor told me years ago, back for one, bring their friends, and measuring it, and it, with an accounting rigor. And companies have to do that, and 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 report it internally, and then take action on it. Because if you're not treating your customers so they are buying more and referring friends, you're off track and you need to adjust. And, and people say, oh, I think I know how to do this net revenue retention, but referrals, that's, that's complicated. That's not a, impossible. You just have to get dedicated to figuring out how are we going to measure it? Let's get serious about who's giving referrals and who's not and which customers are coming in primarily because of referrals. For great businesses, that's actually the most important inflow of new customers. First Republic Bank was one of the first companies I saw doing that. And they knew that 90% of their growth was coming from existing customers being happy and buying more and their referrals. And they'd figured out a way to track it. And they reported in investor day. And I said, you know, if a bank can do this, I think anybody can do this. It just takes some serious attention from accounting Type minds who understand how do we get a reliable metric? And there's always a bias toward making yourself look better than, than you really are and, and cheating if the bonuses are based on it. But it's time to apply that kind of rigor to the most important idea in business, which is treating people so they refer their friends. Remember, that that is the highest standard where when you treat a customer so well, they turn into a reference, especially in, for I, did, I should tell you the founding of Bain Company, the deal was we're going to put all of our energy to help our clients succeed, but we're not going to invest in sales and marketing and all the gimmicks and stuff. And if we do a great job for you, you're sort of morally bound to refer us to one or two of your colleagues. That's the quid pro quo. And that happens naturally anyways, but sort of by putting that on the table early, people understood. And that's how Bain grew. You know, it's, it's many billions of dollars all around the world. With that core philosophy it's of its heart, and I don't think it's just one of many choices for professional service firms. It's the only way to build a great business, a great brand, and and so get serious about tracking referrals, measuring, understanding the value, and 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 having you know a way of measuring the assets. We tell new junior partners to to get to a junior partner position. You You probably should have at least five or six senior executives who are promoters, who will uh, always be happy to do a a referral if asked. By the time you're a senior partner, this should be close to 15 or 20, where you've got that many senior executives that are such powerful uh, promoters based on their experience. And when you can define people's careers based on creating promoters, that's pretty cool, as opposed to how much revenue you sell. You can sell revenues by over-promising and all the stuff that salesmen get a bad name for. But if you start people thinking about, you know, like job is to create 20 promoters by the time I'm 50 years old, that's practical. And we need more companies behaving that way.
3: So Fred, where, where is NPS going? You strike me as this incredibly optimistic and future oriented person.
2: So I know you've given this some thought, where do you want to see it go? Oh, I think the next steps are, um, Companies measuring and reporting earned growth as a, a statistic that is just as important as card earnings and finding the right technologies and processes for measuring the referral process and removing it from black box status to full illumination to who is referring whom and how much value this is creating and understanding the, the microeconomics of referral. I think that's where the, the leading edge pioneers and the NPS movement are, are pushing things.
1: Fred, I want to thank you so much for joining us on the podcast. And actually, more importantly, I want to thank you for essentially your life's work, because I think you've given to the world a really uh, you know, unbelievable insight that's been so valuable to so many. And the time you spent with us today has actually really helped me personally thinking through how we approach this with our clients in general. So thank you so much for everything that you've given to the world of business.
2: Well, it's my pleasure. And I hope you know people should read Winning on Purpose. They should check out the LinkedIn blog that I do sure. customer obsession that this is a moving living breathing <laughs> it's it's moving fast so I think staying on the leading edge is is very important
1: is there a website that is, is winning on is there a website for that
2: guys you know dot is a really good one that, that Bain okay. maintains and I think you know just go to winning on purpose go to LinkedIn and look me up. Those are the best ways to stay current on uh, the latest advances.
1: Well, thanks again. I appreciate
0: your time. And until next time.
2: All right. Thanks, guys. Thanks, Fred.
0: Thank you for listening to Rattle & Pedal, divergent thoughts on marketing and growing professional services firms. Find content related to this episode at RattleAndPedal.com. Rattle & Pedal is also available on iTunes and Stitcher.